an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio. Heard with Dave Ross, Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, Puget Sound is full of surprises, including private ferries, kelp forests, and ancient gooey ducks. At Richmond Beach, somewhere around here, in the last uh, 10 or 15 years ago, Washington State biologists pulled up a gooey duck clam that was 174 years old. And then, from the archives, it might be time to bring back the street hydros. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. And now, welcome back to our course in Washington history. Uh, This is Unit 6 of a 13-part tutorial about the origins of county names in Washington State. We call it All Over the Map, which is a quick look at the stories behind the names of local places. And uh, Felix, who immerses himself in in, uh, county history... Is here. Uh, which counties are we into the Jays now? Yeah, we're into the Jays, so we're almost halfway through the series. So hold on. Um, yes. So we start with Jefferson County on the peninsula, created from Thurston County in December 1852, named for third president Thomas Jefferson, who gets credit for sending Lewis and Clark west. And this was before the creation of Washington Territory. So this was Jefferson County, Oregon Territory. Uh, the county seats Port Townsend. That name was first applied to the body of water there by Captain Vancouver in May 1792. For the Marquess of Townsend, or as his friends called him, George. Um, in the UK peerage system, Marquess is below a duke but above an earl, if you're keeping score. Hmm, okay. Now, the town of that name wasn't created until the 1850s. The post office opened in a cabin in September 1852. Now, King County was created at the same time as Jefferson County in December 1852. It was originally named for the newly elected vice president, longtime Alabama Senator William Rufus Devane King, who was not feeling very well. He was inaugurated in Cuba and died in Mobile, Alabama about six weeks later on April 18, 1853. Um, the namesake of King County was legally changed to civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. in 2005 after a 19-year-long effort. But about William King, what did his contemporaries say? He was, quote, far from a genius, and he had little talent as an orator. Well, not a bad epitaph. Yeah, and this is an actual quote from his U.S. Senate biography. One scholar of the period, mindful of King's practice of wearing a wig long after such coverings had gone out of fashion, dismissed him as a tall, prim, wig-topped mediocrity. These are his <laughs> friends, said, said about him. So anyway, uh, the county seat was always Seattle, named for the uh, Native American chief. There wasn't much of a town here in December 1852, though the post office had been secured in October 1852. Now, Kitsap County was formed from portions of Jefferson County and King County in January 1857 and was originally known as Slaughter County. It was named for Lieutenant William Slaughter of the U.S. Army, who died in the Treaty War in 1855. You know, what's now the city of Auburn was also originally called Slaughter. And people just don't like living someplace called Slaughter, and so they changed the name. And the the namesake Kitsap was a respected indigenous leader in the late 18th century, early 19th century. Though there's some confusion over another indigenous leader with the same name who was involved in the Treaty Wars. Now, the county seat was originally at Port Madison, where the big mill was. From 1857 to 1893, it was then moved over to Sydney, named by a developer, Sidney Stevens, named for himself. But then in 1903, they renamed it Port Orchard after the body of water there that was named for H.M. Orchard, who was, yes, a member of Captain Vancouver's crew. We just can't get away from George Vancouver. No matter where you turn, you're always tripping over something he named. Yes. 
Washington State apples, the fruit that's good for you. So roll in my grub in my blanket, I left all my tools on the ground. I started one morning to shag it, for the country they call Puget Sound. It's been a transportation system, a source of food that's been a body of water that underpins thousands of years of history and culture in this area. Our resident historian Felix Bunnell is here to tell us about a new book focused on Puget Sound, and today's Hike into History is brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning, Felix. Morning, Dave. Yeah, there's a new book from UW Press called Home Waters, A Human and Natural History of Puget Sound. The author is David Williams, the same guy who a few years ago wrote Too High and Too Steep, a fabulous book about the regrades in Seattle. Now, Puget Sound's about 15,000 years old. It was known in a native language as Wolge. So this is a big topic, and this book, which is one of the best local histories I've read in a long time, comes at the story from several directions. I met up with David Williams on a rocky beach along Puget Sound in Shoreline a few days ago. As we sat there on a log, he described years of research, traveling all over Puget Sound, exploring places like kelp beds, meeting with experts, and learning about incredible species like rockfish, orca, and ancient gooey ducks. At Richmond Beach, somewhere around here, in the last uh, was 10 or 15 years ago, Washington State biologists pulled up a gooey duck clam that was 174 years old, which means it was here, I think from the dating I figured out, it was either here just after or just before the Wilkes Expedition in 1841. Wow. And, and we, we've talked about the Wilkes Expedition on this program before. That's when the U.S. Navy came through this area, surveying and naming geographic features. So a gooey duck that was alive that long ago is pretty amazing. And what did those Washington State biologists do with that ancient mollusk? They killed it. Yeah, what? that's why I never wanted, to, never wanted to be a scientist. It's more fun being a historian. You don't have to kill anything. I didn't know it was ancient until they killed it because they're the same size, whether they're 10 years old or 150 oh. years old. Now, the poor gooey duck that was around when Charles Wilkes was here in 1841, but the history of the name Puget Sound goes back even further, and the notion of the original boundaries of Puget Sound has changed a bit. The idea begins with Captain George Vancouver, first European to explore these waters in May 1792. He sent Lieutenant Peter Puget out to explore the waterway's southern reaches. Peter comes back to the boat, and Vancouver writes in his journal to honor his exertions. I named this part of this area Puget's Sound. And it really was just the south end of the sound, basically south of Seattle or maybe even south of, of Tacoma, what become those areas. And Admiralty Inlet was the whole body of water to the north. And basically everything has reversed over time, that Puget Sound has just grown and expanded to take in the entire body of water. And Admiralty Inlet is now just the, the mouth at Port, between Port Townsend and um, Whidbey Island. Yeah, and along with sort of growing an area and becoming the dominant name for not just the water, but for the region, what's unusual about Puget Sound is how late, comparatively speaking, the Europeans came here, 300 years after Columbus. And even though indigenous history stretches back long before that, European settlement rapidly and radically changed the culture, changed everything here. This bay that we're in is really the last European explored body of water, uh, saltwater body of water on the lower 48 states, which is really amazing. And yet, it also has this incredibly long history. We've got evidence going back 13,000, 14,000 years of people here. So, yeah, it gets back to how do we balance that? How does that reflect the development of this area? I mean, what it means is that when people come here, 
and start to exploit the landscape, they immediately have markets to go to. You know, we had San Francisco, this incredibly huge market that just was insatiable. So we could ship coal, we could ship wood. I mean, the two primary things, salmon, uh, herring, Olympia oysters, everything. And so that commercial development could almost happen immediately. Yeah, and that commercial development, along with disease and the treaties in the 1850s that moved indigenous people onto reservations, meant rapid change and decades of environmental degradation that Puget Sound is actually starting to recover from. That was a surprising takeaway from this book. It's a pretty hopeful message. Things are better in Puget Sound than they were decades ago. And so it's alive. It's, it has a living history. And David Williams says there's great ways to connect with that history. One is by hiking up Mount Townsend in Olympic National Forest. Apparently you can see from all the way up to Canada in the north, far down to those old, those old uh, cooling towers down in Satsop, down mm-hmm. near south of Olympia. Yeah, now, an, another great way, of course, is to ride a ferry. David Williams made it his goal to ride every single route. He took all the familiar cross-sound ones we all know about, and he rode the smaller county ones, too. And there was one more category of ferry that he knew nothing about. And then there are the private ferries that go out, these, pe- these homeowners associations that have ferries to their islands. And the one to Decatur Island, they wouldn't even let me on the boat. All I was trying to do is explain, I just want to ride, the f- I'm just trying to ride all the ferries. Like, no, you can't come on it. The one to Hat or Gedney Island, they let me on the boat, but they wouldn't let me off the boat on their island. And then Heron Island down in the South Sound, they let me on the boat and they let me off the boat and they let me back on the boat again, too. So I just want to clarify that part. So you really experienced the <laughs> gamut of responses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these little private ferries were amazing. Now, I mentioned that he really got into the research, and I confess I didn't know there was such a thing, but he actually spent a day at a gooey duck nursery. But I got to see little baby gooey ducks. Oh, my God, they are the cutest thing. Because the big ones, we all know what the big ones look like. They're not terribly, um, well, they are terribly uh, phallic looking. But when they're little, they've got a shell that's maybe the size of a pinto bean, and they've got that little neck that sticks out, and the little neck goes wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. They are really cute. And what did they do with that cute little baby gooey duck? They killed it. No, No, they didn't actually kill the baby duck. No, no, they didn't. They're actually raising them commercially to grow them. So anyway, it's... It's a huge topic. David Williams really gets does a nice job putting into a really readable book. Um, it's called Home Waters. It's out now from UW Press. He's got a bunch of author talks coming up. He gives a great presentation. He's got a virtual one coming up on May 3rd through Seattle Public Library. Yeah. Now, when did you say Puget Sound was the geology? When it was when was it created? It, it's about 15,000 years ago. There's a huge glacier that kind of came down between the Cascades and the Olympics. And as that mineral-rich water was running out and melting away, it kind of gouged out what's now Puget Sound, what's Lake Washington, Lake Sammamish. So it's only 15,000 years old? I know. That's not that that's long ago. Crazy. It's, that's why, crazy. That's why things are always sliding and the... And the sounder's always being blocked. Because, I, I mean, you know, yeah. where I come from back east, it's it's mostly rock, and the, all the erosion stuff took place uh, a long time ago. But here, it was like we were practically created yesterday. Yeah, it's it's very fresh. And, you know, and we've, we, there's still hope to make it even better than it, when it was before it was before the Europeans came. So it's a, it's a great book. It's a hopeful message and a really great story that gives you so much about the culture and the history here and the natural history as well. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, the Pacific Northwest might be the only place where street hydros once ruled the cul-de-sacs and sidewalks. 
race is to be held on the protected waters of beautiful Lake Washington. The three-mile course is laid out in the shape of an oval. Boats travel around it in a counterclockwise direction. Ten laps around for each heat, three heats making up the race. Hmm. That sounds fairly boring. No, no one will show up for that. Felix Spinell is brought to us by the King County Library System. I guess we're looking back at Seafair today. Yeah, and for this story, if you're between the ages of roughly 45 and 65 and you're a guy who grew up around Seattle, the story will make complete sense to you. If not, bear with me as we explore, and I'm not making this up, the world of miniature wooden hydroplanes pulled behind bicycles on the street by little boys, including yours truly on Rose Hill with my miniature Miss Olympia beer painted white with a bottle of liquid paper I stole from my mom. Um, for an explanation of how it worked when he was a little kid in the early 1960s, I spoke with legendary writer and television performer John Keister. Uh, in my neighborhood, which was close to the actual hydroplane pits, I lived kind of near Seward Park. Every block, the boys would tie little wood-carved hydroplanes behind their bicycles, and we would have these hydroplane races uh, out in front of the houses on the blocks that, that we lived in and would paint them our favorite hydroplane of the moment. Keister's favorite hydroplane was a Miss Thriftway, which he pulled behind his Schwinn Stingray, complete with butterfly handlebars and banana seed, of course. Now, in the late 1960s, a few miles north of Keister, future musician and president of the United States of America guitarist Dave Dieterer was tearing up the sidewalks and cul-de-sacs of Laurelhurst in his gold-painted hydro, pulled behind his B-list Murray bike, also with banana seed. It had danger, it had emotion, it had speed. It was a good sound, too, I remember vividly on that rough, segmented pavement that made a very specific sound, uh, you know, that plywood rattling along on there. Now, over on Rose Hill in Kirkland in the early 1970s, Q13 anchor Bill Wixie was pulling his very own miniature Miss Pan Pack. But he says what was really memorable was what an older kid told him about a pyrotechnic grand finale from the early 1960s. And he was telling me that they did the exact same thing, dragging their, their hydroplanes behind their bikes. But then at the end, and I thought this was really brilliant, they would float their hydroplanes down this little stream and light them on fire, Viking style. <laughs> and I thought that was so inspired and so cool. I also spoke with legendary hydroplane driver Chip Hanauer. He told me he started pulling hydros behind his Schwinn Stingray in Newport Hills around 1960. This was about four years before Chip began racing outboard motorboats. So in other words, let's make this really clear. For one of the greatest hydro racers of all time, it all began with a bike-pulled hydroplane. Chip says these wooden miniboats were part of what he calls a universal tribal ritual that flourished for about 20 years from the mid-50s to the mid-1970s. I asked him if he painted his bike hydro to match a real-life boat, and he said no. In fact, he says his boat should have been called the Miss Plywood. Um, <laughs> he was pretty emphatic about not decorating his mini hydroplane at all, and he even got a little feisty about Keister's Miss Thriftway. No, I'm telling you, a flat piece of plywood was the way to go. I mean, no adornment, no nothing, just a flat piece of plywood. If I would have been smart enough, then probably a flat piece of, of steel would have been better. <laughs> I, w I would have used that. I'd like to see Keister deal with me and my flat piece of steel. So where did this universal tribal ritual come from? No one knows for sure. You know, the famous Seattle boat Slow Motion 4 won the Gold Cup, which is the Kentucky Derby of boat racing, in Detroit in 1950. meant the Gold Cup race came to Seattle in 1951. That was like the Super Bowl. Slow Mo 4 also broke the speed record, which was a huge deal. I reached out to my go-to guy for local history and culture, legendary DJ and emeritus voice of the hydro races, Pat O'Day. Pat says it all stems from the fact that Seattle had no major league teams in the 1950s. And so the hydroplanes just dominated the, uh, the feelings and the imaginations 
of the youngsters of the community. And how would you participate in such a thing? You, uh, you could participate in touch football and baseball, but hydroplaning? Well, they built their little models because they were so crazy about the sports and what it was doing. And how do you make them go? You put them behind the bicycle and you pull them, and that's how it all came about. You know, Pat also indulged a fantasy for me and called the final moments of an imaginary bicycle hydroplane race. And so, ladies and gentlemen, the giant crowd's on its feet as these bicycle-powered tiny and limited of battle for the gold. On the outside is TV John Keister in his Miss Thriftway. Then little Billy Wixler pulling the pan back. Dave Dieter with his golden machine, and here they come. On the inside, all of a sudden taking the lead already, is Felix Bunnell streaking across the Tumwater as he yanks Miss Olympia Beer on to victory. Oh, and yes, again, the Olympia Beer has four dots on the label. For those who still remember what that means. Anyway, champion Felix, nice going. Anyway, thank you for doing that, Pat. You're always oh, a great guy. He can still bring it, can He's he? He's awesome, yeah. <laughs> and so this amateur sport died out by about 1980, we think. Maybe it's time with the Mariners taking over summer in yeah. Seattle. And it was only in the Seattle area, not in Detroit or even the Tri-Cities, says oh. Chip Hanauer. Now, we don't have any pictures of this. We have a picture of an old hydroplane from the Mohai collection, but it's not marked with anything. If people have pictures, I would love to see them. If you have an old hydroplane that you used to pull behind your bike. So, anyway, that's how I remember Seafair in the summer. I won't be out this weekend pulling a hydroplane on my bike, but I will be tuning in and finding out how the race turns out. Yeah, I feel deprived. All I had was playing cards against my spokes. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Thank you, Felix. I'm Felix Bennell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Hi, folks. This is Gene Autry and his Hollywood friends wishing K-I-R-O all the success in the world. So long.